So over the coming weeks, uh, we're going to be exploring um, one of the key themes in the book of Galatians. We've been uh, looking at the book of Galatians um, this year, and we're specifically going to uh, zero in in the next little while on the role of the Holy Spirit in uh, the Christian life. But before we get into the nitty-gritty of what Paul, the apostle who wrote um, this letter, had to say about the subject, um, what I'm going to do today is provide a backdrop um, for understanding the biblical significance of the ministry and the work of the Holy Spirit. And what I need you to do this morning is to stick with me, okay? Because believe me, by the time we get to the end of this message, hopefully um, the profound nature of what I'm sharing will, will, will uh, touch you uh, in a big way. So there were three pillars of Judaism at the time of Jesus. They were the law, um, the sacrifice, sacrifices or sacrificial system, and the temple. And in his letter to uh, the churches in Galatia, Paul says that through the gospel of Jesus Christ, Jesus has reframed each of these three pillars. Uh, Jesus overturned um, the role of the law. Uh, the sacrificial system, and also the temple. And he replaced each one of, of these uh, three things with something better. Firstly, when it comes to uh, keeping of the law with its 637 commands, plus all of the other thousands of commandments and rules and regulations that had been um, added on over time, um, those things had become the means by which um, Jewish people believed that they were made right with God. But Paul, in his letter to the Galatians, says that God has overturned that, that, that keeping the law is no longer the way in which a person is made right with God. And he says that people, very clearly states on numerous occasions throughout the book of Galatians, that people are made right with God by their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ. And in Galatians 2 verse 16, he says, Yet we know that a person is made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ, not by obeying the law, and we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we might be made right with God because of our faith in Christ, not because we have obeyed the law, for no one will ever be made right with God by obeying the law. That's good news. Secondly, Paul says that Israel's sacrificial system has also been abolished. In Galatians 1.4, he writes, Jesus Christ rescued us from this evil world wherein by offering himself as a sacrifice for our sins. And so no more animal sacrifices are needed because Jesus is the final and the ultimate sacrifice. He is the Lamb of God slain for us. And thirdly, what we're going to be unpacking uh, today is that Jesus brought an end to the role of the temple. Now, the temple was the epicenter of uh, Judaism. Uh, situated in um, the city of Jerusalem, it was the, it was the hub of um, Israel's religious life. And the temple had its origins in the tabernacle, which was a portable uh, tent-like um, structure that the Israelites carried with them whilst they wandered in the wilderness after their deliverance from Egypt. There's a picture of um, what um, that um, tabernacle uh, looked like. 
And the Hebrew word for tabernacle is residence or dwelling place. And the tabernacle was God's address. It was a place where God lived. God could actually, the presence of God on earth could be actually located to a specific geographical location. And you could point to the tabernacle and say, that's where God lives. And it wasn't only God's home. Um, the tabernacle was also where the place where the Israelites um, met and interacted with God because one of the other names for the tabernacle was, uh, it was also called the tent of meeting. It was the place where heaven met with earth. It's where the divine and the human interacted. And this uh, tabernacle was divided into um, three sections. There was the outer court, um, the holy place, and the holy of holies. And between, uh, inside that little tent there, it was divided into two, two spaces. Um, between the holy place and the holy of holies was a veil, which was a, a thick curtain that could only be passed through once a year by um, the high priest. And in the Holy of Holies, there was a gold-covered wooden chest containing um, the two, tons, two stone tablets of the Ten Commandments and a, and a few other items. And um, that's kind of a, a picture of this chest, which was called um, the Ark of the Covenant. And on top of the Ark of the Covenant um, was the top of that, that uh, box was called the Mercy Seat. And hovering above the Mercy Seat between the wings of those two outstretched um, cherubim or angels um, was a flame or a light which was called the Shekinah. And the Shekinah was the divine presence. It was the manifestation of God's presence here on earth. And in, uh, uh, you won't find the word Shekinah in the Bible, but in Juda Judaistic thought and theology, the Shekinah actually represented the person of the Holy Spirit. So it's this light and this flame, and that is God's present presence manifest on the earth. Now, when um, Israel finally settled into the promised land, the, the tabernacle was replaced by uh, Solomon's temple, which was a permanent structure uh, erected in uh, Jerusalem, which continued to house God and the Ark of the Covenant. And the Hebrew word uh, for temple is house of God, or it could also be uh, called big house. I like that. Big house. And so God's big house was divided into four sections. Um, the outer court, or what was called the, the, the court of the Gentiles. That's, it was an area that was designated for non-Jewish people, or people who were poor or who were sick. And they gathered in, in that area, the outer court. And um, that outer court was fenced off to stop people from getting into the next section of the temple, which was the inner court or the court of women. So can anybody guess who was allowed in that next layer? It was women. So you have the Gentiles, non-Jewish people, and sick and the poor. Then there's this another, another layer that was kind of a step closer to God. That was the women. Okay, and then you moved in another step closer to uh, the holy place, which was accessible to uh, male 
Israelites and also to the, the priests who would um, carry out their, their rituals. And then there's one more step, which again could only be entered into uh, once a year, the Holy of Holies. You'd, uh, a high priest would break through or step through this veil or this curtain. And there in the Holy of Holies was the uh, Ark of the Covenant in which hovering over the mercy seat, in between the wings of the cherubim, was the Shekinah glory, the the light or the flame of God's presence. And so there were layers of access or layers of nearness to God. And some people were able to get closer to God than others. And in Jewish thinking, um, the temple was central it's where all of the spiritual action of, the, of the, the life of Israel took place. And every Jew recognized how important the temple was. It was the place where God lived. It was God's home. It's the place where the Shekinah, the divine presence, dwelt. It was the meeting place of heaven and earth. It's where the divine and the human interacted. In 586 BC, uh, Solomon's temple was destroyed and it was later replaced by Herod's temple. And here's an artistic representation of what the second temple possibly looked like. And it was an amazing structure. It's about the size of three football fields. And each of uh, the stones of Herod's temple weighed uh, 50 ton. That's 50,000 kilo. And each of the uh, and, and also the cornerstones weighed about 80, 80 ton. And these stones were cut from a quarry, which was about uh, over a, over a, a kilometer, kilometer and a half away from where the temple was built. And each stone was pulled by about a 1,000 um, uh, oxen. And it was an incredible engineering feat when you think about it. They, they didn't have the technology that we, we have today. That some of those stones were lifted 30 metres, that's 100 feet, into the air. And it took 46 years, 10,000 people, and all of Herod's wealth um, to make this temple um, what a, this wonderful structure that it was. And it's this temple that was in place during the time of Jesus. Now, Jesus' disciples um, went with Jesus one time with, in, uh, to, to Jerusalem. And um, you've got to remember the disciples were young guys. They were probably late high school, maybe his early 20s, but they were a group of young guys. Most of them had grown up in in kind of country towns and little villages and stuff like that. So they were kind of kids that have come from, they're country bumpkins that have come into the city. And they're walking around Jerusalem and they see the temple and they're overwhelmed by what they see. They're, they can't get over the temple's grandeur. And so they say a number of things uh, to, G, to Jesus. Um, it says, as Jesus was leaving the temple courts, his disciples came to him and pointed out the beautiful aspects of the architecture of the temple structures. Uh, Mark 13, it says, one of his disciples said to Jesus, Teacher, look at the, that stonework, those buildings. 
And then in Luke 21, um, some of the disciples remarked about the beauty of the temple and they pointed out all the lovely adornments and how it was built with excellent excellence from the gifts given to God. What's really surprising and actually quite shocking is that Jesus did not share his disciples' amazement or wonder for the temple. In fact, I'm going to dazzle you with my French now, but Jesus' attitude towards the temple was laissez-faire. And he's pretty casual. He's quite ambivalent towards what was one of the three key pillars of Jewish religious life. And in Matthew 24, 2, Jesus, it says, turned to his disciples and said, take a look at all of these things. And he points to the temple. He says, I am telling you, there will not be one stone left upon another. It will all be leveled. Again, in Matthew, uh, Mark 13, 2, Jesus said, you're impressed by this grandiose architecture. But there's not a stone in the whole works that is not going to end up in a heap of rubble. And then in Luke 21, 6, Jesus said, The day will come that everything you admire here will be utterly destroyed. It will become a heap of rubble. So Jesus is saying his time is coming, and he was right. He was uh, not long after this, about 40 years um, after Jesus' death, the temple in Jerusalem was obliterated by uh, the Roman Empire who came in and just um, ransacked the, the place. On another occasion, when Jesus was in a discussion with the religious leaders, he says, but I say to you, there is one here who is even greater than the temple. There is one here who is even greater than the temple. And the question that um, these um, uh, religious leaders must have been thinking to themselves, what can possibly be greater than the temple? What is possibly more grander than the place where God lives, the place where the Shekinah glory is, is present? And so in John 2, 12 to 22, Jesus again shows his kind of his casualness or his disregard towards the temple. He says he found the temple teeming with people, selling cattle and sheep and doves. And the loan sharks were also there in full strength. And Jesus put together a whip out of strips of leather and chased them out of the temple stampeding the sheep and cattle, upending the tables of the loan sharks, spilling coins left and right. And he told the dove merchants, get your things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a shopping mall. And that's what his disciples remembered the scripture, zeal for your house consumes me. But the Jews were upset. They asked, what credentials can you present to justify this? And Jesus answered, tear down this temple and in three days I'll put it back together. They were indignant. It took 46 years to build this temple and you're going to rebuild it in three days. But Jesus was talking about his body as the temple. 
that which um, was greater than the temple that Jesus was referring to was actually himself. He was greater than the temple. And what people of Jesus' time, particularly the religious leaders, failed to see or understand is that he was a living, breathing carrier of the divine life, of the Shekinah glory, of this, this, um, this, uh, this manifest presence of God on the earth. And in John 1, 14, uh, John wrote these words, the word or Jesus the expression of God became human and made his, made his home. And that word their home is the word tabernacled. Jesus made his home among us. So Jesus was a living tabernacle, a living temple. And so the, one, the very one who brought the universe into being has come in a body and taken up residence on the earth. And Jesus made the temple redundant because he was the place in which God lived. He is where heaven and earth coalesced. He is now where the divine and the human come together and intersect. But that's just the beginning. This is where it gets really, really exciting. But wait, there's more. And if we can get our head and our heart around this truth, it will revolutionize your life and has the potential to transform the community in which we are part of. In Matthew 27, 51... I'm starting to wake up. In Matthew 27, verse 51, at the moment of his death, Matthew writes that the veil of the Holy of Holies was torn in two from the top to the bottom. The barrier, the veil, the curtain that separated God from people was at the moment of Jesus' death was removed and the Shekinah the divine light the divine flame packed up their bags and said we're getting out of this temple and we want to take up residence somewhere else and God went house hunting see in the past under the old covenant there were layers of access, layers of nearness to God. Some people were able to get closer to God than others. But now, with that veil in the temple being torn apart, God was accessible to all and was going to come and live in all who come to Christ. And in Acts 7.48, it tells us that God no longer lives in temples made with human hands. This room and this building is not a sacred space. Its sacredness is only because we are here. 
There's nothing holy about this place other than the fact that we're here because we're holy. It's only sacred because we are sacred. And the moment we move out of here, the Shekinah walks out with us. And this amazing truth is something that Paul the Apostle continually reinforced in his teaching. In 1 Corinthians 3.16, he writes, Don't you realize that all of you together are the temple of God and that God's Spirit lives in you? He says, don't you realize? Don't you realize that all of you together are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God lives in you? In you. Then in 1 Corinthians 6 19, he's so overwhelmed with this thing that he has to repeat it again. And he says, Hey, again, don't you realize? Come on, wake up to the fact, wake up to the reality that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God. He says, Don't you wake up? And open your eyes to the fact that you are now the temple of God. You are now indwelt with the Shekinah glory of God. You are now the place where God lives. And then, thank you. If you get this, when you get this, It changes everything. In Romans 8, verse 9, in the message it says, But if God himself has taken up residence in your life, you can hardly be thinking more of yourself than of him. Anyone, of course, who has not welcomed this invisible but clearly present God, the Spirit of Christ, won't know what we're talking about. But for you who welcome him, in whom he dwells, even though you still experience all the limitations of, your, of sin, you yourself experience life on God's terms. It stands to reason, doesn't it, that if the alive and, and present God who raised Jesus from the dead moves into your life, he'll do the same thing in you that he did in Jesus, bringing you alive to himself. And when God lives and breathes in you, and he does as surely as he did in Jesus, you are delivered from the dead life. With his spirit living in you, your body will be as alive as Christ's. Then in Ephesians chapter 2 and 20 to 22, he writes, Together we are his house built on the foundations of the apostles and prophets and the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. We are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Through him, you Gentiles, that's us, are also being made part of this dwelling where God lives by his spirit. I'm really serious about it. Turn to the person next to you And look in their eyes because that person is a person in whom God lives. I know it's a bit of a surprise, it's a bit of a shock, but it's true. God 
lives. God lives in that, in that person. God lives in us. Just as the Hebrew people could point to the tabernacle and say, that's where God lives. That's God's address. I can stand here and point my way through the room at where God now lives. And in the book of Galatians, Paul continues to remind us of the amazing truth of where God now lives. In Galatians 2.20, it says, The anointed one lives his life through me. We live in union as one. In Galatians 3.14, it says, And now God gives us the promise of the wonderful Holy Spirit who lives within us when we believe in him. And then Galatians 4, 6, And because we are his children, God has spent, sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. We are the tabernacle. We are the temple of God. And this is what it means to be a human. A human is where God dwells, is where the divine dwells. And we need to elevate our understanding of what it means to be Christians. We are temples of God. And just as Jewish people would not think of desecrating the temple... How dare we think that we can go around desecrating God's temples with our words, with our slander, with our accusation? Who do you think you are to criticize the temple of God? To sit in judgment and desecrate the temple of God. Who do you think you are? You would not walk into uh, the temple, Solomon's temple, or into Herod's temple and get the spray paint out and write graffiti and slander on the walls. But some of us, all of us, are guilty of doing that with one another. And it's got to stop. It's got to stop. We don't desecrate the temple. We don't desecrate the temple. That's not in my notes, so I don't know where that came from. You see, in the past, God was limited to one place at one time. God had one address. It was on top of the wooden box in the Holy of Holies on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, Israel. But now God is wherever we are. And there are God's temples walking all around the village glen. And there are little temples or God's temples walking around Rosebud Plaza. And there are God's temples that go down to Rosebud Secondary College. And there are God's temples that go to the boathouse gym and work out and strengthen that temple and try to improve the look of that temple. What does this all practically mean? Is it just some kind of mystical concept or does being the home of the divine light 
have implications for the way in which we outwork our daily lives. Is this just a great idea? Oh, that sounds oh, that sounds great. And do we just go on living the way that we've always lived? Well, in Galatians, Paul points out two key things about us being God's temple. Firstly, the power to change is now within our grasp. In Galatians 3, Paul writes, How foolish can you be after starting your new, li- your new lives in the Spirit? Why are you now trying to become perfect by your human effort? Let's face it, we all get stuck, don't we? In areas of our lives, in our character and our personality that kind of is not who we should be and we find ourselves doing things that we ought not to, we get, we get stuck. And then we try really, really hard to change. Is that familiar to anybody? And we work so hard and we, we can't seem to, we get stuck. And we still act and say and do things that we've always done. And no matter how hard we try, it seems that we cannot move beyond our faults and weaknesses. And this is where divine help comes in. Being a divine, uh, 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 being a temple of God means that the divine is within us and that transformation of our character is possible because God is close. God is in us. And that's what Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit, is all about. It's Paul explaining what the life of a person whose life is like who allows the Spirit of God to go to work in their lives. There is a transformation that takes place that a person ultimately becomes a, an expression of love. And those, what we call the nine fruit of the Spirit, I believe are just simply aspects of love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And then the second way in which um, this thing of us being temples outworks itself is we can all be led by God. So since we are living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. We all get lost, don't we? And we're uncertain or unsure of which direction we should go. But the good news is, as temples of God, the divine light lives within us and can shine light onto our path so that we have an understanding, a clarity of the direction that we should take and where we should go. And it's called wisdom. So the Spirit, in very practical and real ways, is at work within us. Us being the temples mean we have transformed characters and we have access to wisdom. God's greatest endorsement of you 
is that God offers to dwell within you. It's the greatest endorsement that God could give, is that God comes and makes his home within us. I was surprised when I listened to Mike's um, sermons that he didn't uh, break out into song. You've got a great voice. When I was a new Christian, we sang a song based on 1 Corinthians 6.19, and it's completely daggy. You love daggy. And it went like this. The words are, Know ye not, know ye not, ye are the temple. Know ye not, know ye not, ye are the temple. Know ye not, know ye not, ye are the temple. Ye are the temple of the Holy Ghost. And we used to sing that song and we used to look at one another and point towards one another when we sang it. Know ye not, know ye not, ye are the temple. Know ye not, know ye not, ye are the temple. Know ye not, know ye not, ye are the temple. You are the temple of the Holy Ghost. And then people would respond with, Yes, I know, yes, I know, I am the temple. Yes, I know, yes, I know, I am. you are the temple. Yes, I know, yes, I know, I am the temple. I am the temple of the Holy Ghost. Then we would get our jazz hands out. <laughs> and we would go, Fill with power, fill with praise, fill with glory. Fill with power, fill with praise, and fill with glory. Fill with power, fill with praise, and fill with glory. I am a temple of the Holy Ghost. It's as daggy as anything. But we used to sing that. And it would do something to you. And we need to resurrect Nate, some of these old songs. <laughs> because they're filled with truths that transform our life. I don't know who you think you are, but I want to tell you who God says you are. You are a temple. You are the dwelling place of God Most High. God lives in you. God wants to live not only in you, but through you. And wherever you go, you carry God with you. And as you go, God wants you to carry love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. And God wants you to sow those seeds wherever you go. And when you're uncertain about which path to take in life, you don't look out, you look in. And you, we learn to tune ourselves to the voice of the Spirit of God who lives within us. And that light, that divine light, that sacred light within us gives us wisdom so that we know where we should go and what we should do.
That's the Christian life that we are invited into. It's pretty awesome. It is pretty awesome.